standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to Habakkuk uh, chapter 3. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, it's the fifth to last book in the Old Testament, which means a simple way to get there would be to turn to Matthew, or rather a large book that begins the New Testament, and head back left five books and you'll be in the right place. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 786. We did begin just four weeks ago our short sermon series through this very brief minor prophet, Habakkuk, and it comes to an end today as we want to look at all 19 verses of chapter 3, and I hope that in recent weeks you have been encouraged to consider afresh God's sovereignty, His kindness, and His goodness even in the midst of calamity, because as we've seen every single week, even though the book was written some 2,600 years ago or so, it reaches out through the centuries to our present-day experience, to our present-day troubles and trials. And in many ways, at least for my mind, chapter 3 of this minor prophet is the most profound of the entire book. And so I hope it will speak to you this morning. So let me get us going by reading all 19 verses And then pray that God would bless our study and we will begin. So let us hear now as God once again speaks to us through his word. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. And the sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait. For the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. For though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. 
God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we know that You have told us that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be blessed. Father, we pray that You would bless those of us in here this morning who come hungry to Your Word. That You would meet us through Your spoken truth that we might know more of You. I pray for those in here this morning who are not hungry, who are not thirsting, that You by the Spirit would awaken within them a desire to know the words of life that we find in our text. So open our eyes, open our hearts that we might serve You and love You and know You evermore. To hear with earnestness and eagerness. Help me to preach as You say I must. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Arthur John Gossip was one of the most famous preachers in Scotland during the 1920s. And as so often happens in church history, brilliant lights of the pulpit are forgotten very soon after they die. So much so is Arthur John Gossip forgotten today that you could log on to the internet and you won't even find a Wikipedia entry for this preacher that shook Scotland just a few decades ago. He was a pastor who knew great loss. He had been a chaplain during the First World War on the battlefields of France and Belgium. He had spent years then holding beloved soldiers, beloved comrades who had fallen in the fight. And on a Saturday in 1927, he held his beloved wife who had suddenly fallen ill. And within a few hours, she was dead. And he rose the next morning at his church in Aberdeen, Beech Grove Church, to preach a sermon. And as he was rising up to the pulpit, as he was entering his place of ministry, his members there at the church began to whisper to one another, to comment into the person's ear seated next to them, what's he going to say today after such a loss? Does he even have anything to say to us? And so he began to preach. A sermon that one scholar has called one of the greatest sermons uttered in the English language in the 20th century. It's a sermon that takes its title from the first words of the message. When life tumbles in, what then? When the world seems to be crumbling around you, how are we to live? That's a question that confronted Habakkuk so many centuries before. It's a question, students, if you live long enough and the Lord tarries, granting you several more decades of life, I promise you will either ask the question yourself, when the world tumbles in, what then? Or someone's going to ask it of you. And I wonder what answer you might give to them. What we have here in Habakkuk chapter 3 is the prophet's answer to that question. After all of his searching, after all of his praying, after all of his seeking, he finally gets by the end of the book to a place where he knows what it means to live under what are often the frowning providences of God. So if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, what we have been looking into in these three short chapters is little more than just Habakkuk's prayer journal. Because it's not as many of the books in our Bible that are prophetic books are, these public declarations from God's servant. Uh, We're just seeing what Habakkuk's praying about 
at how God's responding to those prayers. And so his first prayer came in chapter 1, which is essentially his prayer of asking the Lord, how long do I have to continue to pray before you do something about all the evil in the southern kingdom of Judah? Why do you seem so indifferent to all the injustice? King Jehoiakim's reign had brought nothing but violence and oppression to God's covenant people. And Habakkuk wonders, when is the Lord going to do anything about it? Well, the Lord first speaks in verse 5 of chapter 1 saying, well, I already am doing something about it. It's just not something you ever expected. I'm raising up the Babylonian army to come against my people, to crush my covenant people as a covenant rod of discipline for their sin and idolatry against me. So Habakkuk prayed a second time at the end of chapter 1. And his prayer was a little more than, hold on a second. Do you mean to tell me, you who are too holy to look upon evil, you're going to use an evil empire to crush your people? And then in chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk essentially says, I'll just sit here and wait for you to answer my complaint. So chapter 2, God's second and final response in the book, verse 2 through verse 20, he says, okay, Habakkuk, write down this vision. Central declaration of this prophetic book comes in verse 4 of chapter 2, where God says the righteous will live by faith. That's what it means to submit to God's sovereignty as he goes about his plan that often confuses us and often perplexes us. And then we saw last week in verses 6 through 20 of Habakkuk chapter 2 that God didn't stop there. He also put a fight song on the lips of his people. He said, in the midst of your suffering and sorrow, what you're to sing over the coming conquering Babylonian army is this five stanza song of woe. Because, don't worry, I recognize how sinful and evil they are. And I will eventually judge them for their sin. And so we left off, if you look up to verse 20 of chapter 2, with the Lord declaring that he's in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And maybe you know that sometimes when the Lord moves in such a powerful way, and you just don't seem to be able to move physically or speak audibly. There still is this soulful communication that you have with the Lord, the soul's prayer in the midst of the heart's silence. And that's what we get in our passage today, 19 verses that are Habakkuk's prayer unto the Lord. And the theme of these 19 verses is very simply the truth that faith, remember, the righteous will live by faith. So what kind of faith? Faith delights in God no matter the circumstances. A righteous faith rejoices in God no matter the circumstances. So even when judgment is on the way, true faith rejoices in God. Even when suffering stalks you like the wind, true faith clings to God's promises. Even when affliction is your constant companion, true faith exalts in God's power. That's what Habakkuk is going to tell us this morning. And it's 19 verses that really do come to us in three separate sections. And so we just want to walk through each section, trying to capture as best we can the emotional experience of Habakkuk in that moment, because his experience, even in this chapter, is very much one I think that's true of ordinary Christians as they live under God's providence, which often is a providence that brings suffering, hardship, difficulty, and confusion. So first of all, we see the call to turn to God. Notice again verse 1. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Now children, when was the last time you heard that word? Shigianoth. It only shows up one other time in the Bible. You can turn to Psalm chapter 7 verse 1. 
So as best we can tell, it's a musical term. But we don't know exactly what kind of a term it is. Maybe it's talking about the structure of the prayer. I think it's very likely that it's a melody that this was to be sung to. Because this is a prayer that is to be sung. If you look at the end of the chapter in verse 19, Habakkuk addresses this to the choir master with string instruments. So yes, it's a prayer, but it's also a song. So what you want to think about this passage as being is little more than a psalm from Habakkuk. He has heard God's word. He has heard God's promises. So what is he to do in light of what he has heard? He's to sing prayerfully. Now, some of you know that this is an ordinary response for Christians in the midst of God's sovereignty in their lives. They pray. They sing. For sometimes prayers and songs give words to our soul's emotions that few other things can. And what we get in this first prayer of Habakkuk is a threefold request from the Lord in verse 2. The, the best book on prayer that I've ever read, at least for my kind of personality, is an old book written, written centuries ago by a pastor named Matthew Henry. It's called a, a Method of Prayer. And what he did evidently over the course of a few months is just string together all of these written prayers for what it might look like for a Christian to pray, not just comprehensively, but, but biblically. And you can get a copy of his book on prayer that has all the proof text for almost every phrase that is spoken in his prayers. And it always astonishes me, one, how well he knew his Bible, uh, but two, how much scriptural truth he can pack into one paragraph of a prayer. And it's as though in some ways he not only learned from the Psalms, but Habakkuk himself, because in just a few phrases he packs in three specific requests to God. Notice first that God would revive his work. He says in the middle part of verse 2, in the midst of the years, revive it. Revive your work. O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. I do fear it. Revive it. So the question we want to ask here from the beginning is, what's the work that Habakkuk has heard about? Now, if you have been reading about this text, maybe in preparation for today, you've noticed verse 3 through 15 uses all this poetic, prophetic language that seems to, one, confuse you, but call about all of God's redemptive acts in history. So maybe what Habakkuk has heard about and is remembering is what God has done throughout the ages, and that's the report that he wants God to revive this work of the Lord. But I think what's better is to understand it as something more narrow. If you skip back to chapter 1, verse 5, the only other time the word work is used in this book is when God speaks for the first time and says, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So what's the work that God's getting ready to do? Raise up the Babylonian empire to crush Judah. I have heard of that work, O Lord, and I fear it, is what Habakkuk says. Do you ever think that we've lost a lot in our 21st century context and culture that has little time for fearing God? Uh, when was the last time you heard Christians encouraging, exhorting, praying for one another to grow in fearing God, literally fearing His majesty, His splendor, His glory? That's what Habakkuk is doing here. It's totally proper to fear this God as we're getting ready to see in the coming verses. And so he prays in verse 2, in the midst of years, revive it. I think actually a better translation from the Hebrew is less revive it, but revive him. Because it can be translated that way. Revive who? Well, I think it's the righteous who lives by faith. As the wrath is about ready to come, as the trembling is about ready to ensue, God, don't forget the righteous who live by faith. 
make the dead live, not just revive your work. Notice the second request in verse 2, in the midst of years, make it known. He wants God to reveal His work. Don't just make the dead live. Open their eyes to see the truth of who you are, to know that you indeed are the Redeemer, the covenant King, the kind leader, the good shepherd of your people. And then thirdly, you'll see in verse 2, he says for God to remember His people, because he says, in wrath, remember mercy. A storm of God's wrath, the hurricane of God's judgment is on the way, and he's saying, don't forget us. Remember mercy in the midst of the judgment that we do deserve. And this word here for wrath, it's, it's rather interesting because I think it only shows up one other time in the Bible. It's not the normal word that our Old Testament authors use for wrath. It, it more is akin to agitation or trembling. And so I think it's right for us to really understand it as trembling. In the midst of trembling, remember mercy. Because what we're going to now see in verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk turns to God but also is now trembling before God, trembling before God. So kids, you may have noticed as we were looking through the passage and I was reading earlier how I skipped over this word that showed up three times in the right-hand margin. Do you see it in verse 3, in verse 9, and in verse 13? Selah. That's another word that is probably a musical term, as best we can tell. It shows up often in the Psalms. We really don't know what it means either. But its function here in the middle part of Habakkuk is to signal these three stanzas between verse 3 and 15. These three sections of truth that Habakkuk is prayerfully singing before God. And the first stanza is all about God's wrath in history. For notice what he says in verse 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, maybe the best Bible trivia question you can get today is, what do you know about Taman and Mount Paran? Probably very little. I want to show up a couple of places in the Old Testament. Even there's great dispute, particularly on Taman, where it exactly is. But we can be for sure that Taman, from what we know, and Mount Paran was east of Israel. What rises in the east is the sun. This light metaphor that soon is going to come in the rest of verse 3 and 4 seems to be talking about God rising in history. But more acutely, as Taman was in the southern region of the wilderness wanderings of Israel when they were redeemed out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 33 verse 2 says Mount Sinai was right next to Mount Paran. So to speak of Mount Paran was to speak of God's action for His people at Mount Sinai. And you remember Exodus 19 maybe where God came down on that mountain and what did the mountain do? It shook. It quaked. The people trembled there before the glory of Yahweh coming down on the mountain, which speaks to these pictures of power that now come. You'll notice as you scan your eyes through verse 3, 4, and 5. The splendor covered the heavens. The earth is full of His praise. His brightness flashed forth like rays from His hand. There He showed His power, plague and pestilence, went on the way. And so if you were hearing this prayer, singing this prayer as an Israelite in the 7th century, maybe even 6th century B.C., immediately as you think of Taman and Mount Paran, you're thinking of God's work in history. God's particularly His work in revealing His power, His redemption, redeeming Israel out of Egypt. And if you know that story, how did the salvation of His people come? Through incredible judgment upon Egypt. When God comes, when God appears in history, judgment will come as well. Salvation through judgment is God's ordinary work throughout the Bible. 
And so what we're really looking at in verses 3 through 15 is called a theophany. Now, students, you know what a theophany is? It's a visible appearance of God in history. That's why one theologian of old called these verses, verse 3 through 15, as the greatest theophany in all of Scripture. This is what happens when God arrives, when He shows up. You'll see in verse 6 through 8, he talks about this metaphor, these pictures of creation and the effect that God's appearance had on them. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains and hills are scattered and sank low. Such was his everlasting way. So at the end of verse 6 says, probably better translated, such were his ancient ways. He's again reflecting on God's wrath in history, so much so that these tribes of Kushan in verse 7 and Midian tremble before Yahweh when he shows up. People tend to run away scared, is what Habakkuk is saying. Creation tends to tremble before God. So he asks a logical question, I think, in the course of his prayer. Notice verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You remember, God delivers Israel out of Egypt. He strikes the Nile River with a plague. He strikes the Red Sea to deliver His people across it, to fold the waters back on the Egyptian armies. And so he's asking, was it at creation that you were angry? Do you understand the question? They experienced your wrath. Were you angry at the rivers? Were you angry at the seas? As he's reflecting on God's wrath in history, he now answers his own question in the next section, which speaks of God's wrath towards iniquity. Because again, if you just scan your eyes through verses 9 through 11... More metaphors of God's power, His coming, and its effect on creation. But just look at verse 10. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Now, kids, you want to think about the picture here is that God comes and creation throws up its hands in surrender before the coming of the Lord, such as the power of Yahweh. But again, he answers his own question. Notice verse 12. It wasn't against creation that he was angry. For you see what he says. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. It's against sinful empires. It's against wicked governments that God's wrath comes. This word threshed, it's a, it's a striking one, the way it works out in the Old Testament. You could turn later on this afternoon to Judges chapter 8. God's judge in that chapter at least is Gideon. And Gideon's going to punish the enemies of God. And he says, I'm going to thresh them. And so what does he do? He takes out God's enemies and threshes their flesh with thorns in the wilderness. Such is judgment that God brings upon sinful nations when he comes in his wrath. You threshed the nations in anger. And some of you need to know that God's wrath towards sin is no different today than it was so many centuries ago. That the nation's threshing is but a picture of the threshing that will come at the end of all things. The future judgment when Jesus Christ arrives because we're all born in sin. You and I are sinful people. By nature, the Bible says we are children of wrath. This kind of punishment that the creation quakes because of will fall upon you and I unless we cling to someone which is the point of the first half of verse 13. Notice what Habakkuk says. You went out for the salvation 
of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. The anointed people of God, chosen people of God, are saved through the anointed one of God. It's as though Habakkuk, through the work of the Spirit, is looking through the ages to the one that was to come, the anointed one of God, which you might know the Old Testament word for that is the Messiah. The New Testament word for that is the Christ. He's going to work salvation through judgment, through His anointed one, whom we know is God's Son, the Savior for sinners, Jesus Christ. So yes, indeed, all of us deserve this kind of threshing, this kind of quaking, this kind of shattering. But through clinging to Christ, we might be saved. We might be numbered among His people because God anointed Jesus to do what? Live the life that you are supposed to live. He anointed Jesus to die the death that you deserved. He anointed Jesus to save people like you and me. So if you're not a Christian, you merely need to turn from your sin and trust in Him. The righteous will live by faith, Habakkuk says. Clinging to Him and Him alone means you will be numbered among God's people at the day of salvation. So if you are a Christian, you want to be encouraged, even from this language here in Habakkuk. In the midst of all of this wrath and all of this trembling, God isn't forgetting His people. It might seem like He has. Certainly the people in Judah would have thought that over the next few decades, but He hasn't forgotten them altogether. He's going, if you even look at verse 14, He's going to scatter those who scatter uh, scatter his people, and the poor are going to rejoice in God. The poor are going to rejoice in God. King Louis XIV was king of France, you know, a few centuries ago, and he considered himself to be the greatest king who ever lived. And so in order to portray that reality he was convinced of in his mind, he gave these funeral arrangements that were very specific. He said, when I die, put my casket in the Notre Dame Cathedral. It's normal, very old for French monarchs at the time. But blow out all the candles. Take one candle, put it on my casket, and light that one to show my singular brilliance. So he dies, and all of that happens. And then a preacher named Massillon rises there at the funeral because it's his job to give the funeral oration. It was a very short oration because he gets up, he walks over to the casket, he blows out the light. And then twice he says, only God is great. And it's truth that you see at the end of verse 13. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You want to understand the way that even the Hebrew works is quite helpful if your English translation reflects it in the same way, the subject and the action of all of these verses between 12 through 15, because you'll see that you marched, you threshed, you went, you crushed, you pierced, you trampled your enemies. You worked salvation on behalf of your people. When the Lord comes... He comes to bring salvation for His people, but that salvation comes through judgment. Uniquely here in Habakkuk's mind, it's judgment upon the nation of Babylon. So he trembles before God. And you'll see now that he trusts in God. Just last night, as many of you who live close by may have experienced, thunder broke out over our home sometime after 7 o'clock, and we had just put in our little two-year-old Sarah to bed, and not long after that, she was crying, and I went into the room, and I said, hey, what's wrong? And she says, the thunder is scary. And I said, because these are the things that we try to use catechisms for is, what did God make? God made all things. God made the thunder, 
and he is good. And with only the theology and honesty of a two-year-old, she said, he's scary. (laughs) And it's true, isn't it? He's scary, but he's good. Habakkuk knows he's scary. Do you see verse 16? This review of God's wrath and history leads him to say, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. You see that in the sweep of Habakkuk's experience in this book, he's gone from arguing with God about what God was doing to accepting God's plan. But his submission to God's sovereignty, what does it do? It leaves him shaken. It leaves him utterly shattered. Some of you know this experience, don't you? In the midst of sorrow and suffering, affliction and hardship. It's as though you're so exhausted that you can't even sleep. You're in such emotional pain, your bones are aching, that your heart pounds every hour of the day thinking about what is coming in the future. I remember one time in my life going through a unique difficulty, and the only time in my life it ever happened, I suddenly broke out in hives, such as the physical effect sometimes of what the future is going to bring. Yet Habakkuk uses this word, yet, twice in the remainder of the text. It's a word that is a contrast that points us to the nature of true faith. And so that's what we want to see here at the end of Habakkuk, is the two things he tells us, the two truths he tells us about faith, the kind of faith the righteous live by. First of all, it's faith that waits on God. Notice the end of verse 16. He says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Yet I will quietly wait on God. He knows what's coming down the next few decades is going to be decades full of hardship and difficulty. He's not waiting for the day of trouble to come upon Judah, which is going to come probably in just a few years' time, or start to come in just a few years' time. You'll notice in verse 16, he's waiting for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. In other words, the Babylonians. And if you know your timeline of the book of Habakkuk, this means it's at least 65 years on from this prayer that that's going to happen in 539 B.C., So at least Habakkuk is saying, I'll wait quietly for six decades. And in all likelihood, I'll wait quietly for the rest of my life because he won't even be around to see that day. Some of you need to hear God's promise. And true faith means wait quietly for the rest of your life, trusting that God is no less good. True faith waits on God. How horrible is the time going to be that's getting ready to come on Judah? Just notice verse 17. He piles up all these agricultural pictures. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there shall be no herd in the stalls. Kids, what he's saying there is there's no food, and people are going to die of starvation. It would be just like if you woke up tomorrow morning and you went to eat breakfast and you figured out, hey, the pantry happens to be empty. The refrigerator and the freezer, well, there's no food in there either. And you go to the grocery store, the shelves are all barren as well. No restaurant is open. The stock market has crashed. All industry and utilities have failed overnight. How will you live? That was the problem confronting Judah. If you know their story, when Babylon comes in judgment upon Judah, they laid siege to Jerusalem and thousands died. How? by starvation. But Habakkuk, what does he use again? 
this word yet. Notice verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. True faith waits on God. True faith also rejoices in God. And should God continue to be kind with us as the Lord tarries, we may never have that kind of experience that the people of Judah had. Death by starvation. But that doesn't mean that we aren't often confronted with realities and sufferings in our life, providences from the Lord that do cause us to shake, do cause us to tremble, knowing what is on the way. So maybe to drive point the striking reality of His joy in the midst of judgment Just think about it in situations maybe more common to our context and culture today. You've prayed for the Lord to open the womb, and He does, and you get pregnant. Then you discover that the Lord plans to take that child away within the next few months. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. You've prayed for grandchildren, and one is on the way, but then you go to the doctor and find out you have cancer, and the Lord says, I'll take you in the next three to six months. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. The Lord puts you in a new place and a new calling. Yet, subsequent to that new calling is the promise, just so you know, no one's going to listen to you. Everyone's going to loathe you. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Surely, each one of us can call on this laundry list of experiences in our life in which God has promised something unto us that seemed like it was going to be so difficult. And the Christian faith in which we are called to is one that is fighting for, waiting on God, and rejoicing in God. Because you'll notice verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The joy of the Lord is our strength, the book of Nehemiah says. You can picture students, the image that brings to Habakkuk's mind. It's that joy in God, resting on His character, is so sure to bring happiness and pleasure to His people that it's as though the soul is like the deer's feet dancing. Happiness, leaping for joy, ascending to heights of trust and delight in God that you never came before, treading upon my high places. Such is the nature of righteous faith. Faith. In Jesus Christ, of course, who is God, who is the Lord, who is our strength that by His Spirit and Word leads us on to new heights of experience, even in the midst of the darkest nights of the soul. So Arthur John Gossip, this preacher, 1927, stands to deliver this sermon. When life tumbles in, what then? And he begins to work out his answer to that question by turning to the pages of Jeremiah, a prophet who was a contemporary of Habakkuk. And by the end of his sermon, he gets to a point where he says to his congregation, hey, you who live in the sunshine, you may believe in God, but we who live in the shadows must believe in God. For where else would we go? And he says, be of good cheer, my brothers. I feel the bottom." And it is sound. It's a conclusion that Habakkuk gets to at the end. Be of good cheer, God's people. I see the bottom, and He is sound. Faith that can rejoice in God is the faith that clings to Christ, who is the sure and steady anchor for the souls of God's people. That's the message of Habakkuk to God's people. Let's pray together. Father, we are keenly aware of our shortcomings. 
our failures, in the midst of sorrows and difficulties, quietly waiting upon you, rejoicing in your care of us is often difficult. Father, we may even want to confess almost impossible for our souls to come to, but we thank you for our word. We thank you even for the experience of this great prophet of old that reminds us of who you are, that even when we're confused and perplexed and troubled and trialed, that we can cling to you, for you are our strength, for your word is our way, for your character is our foundation. So strengthen us, we pray, in your Son. Strengthen us in the truth that you have revealed to us these last few weeks in this wonderful little book, that we might indeed be found righteous in Jesus Christ, for the righteous will live by faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.